Welcome to today's reading of the January 25, Thursday, Mason City Globe Gazette and the Fort Dodge Messenger. I'm your reader, Doug Kretzinger, and our first story today <clears throat> is on the changing times, lives, one trip at a time. And the headline is, Program Flies Those in Need to Medical Appointments for Free, written by Robin McClelland of the Globe Gazette. Doug Prell, P-R-A-L-L-E of Hampton, is a businessman and a pilot. He has been a gift to many people in the area. Prowl is a crop duster by trade, operating flying farmer aerial applications out of his hangar at the Hampton Municipal Airport. He also directs a charitable program called Compassion Flights. Compassion Flights is a labor of love for Prowl and the volunteers who work with him. Flying a Cessna 182, he and his bullpen of generous pilots take those in need of medical assistance to appointments for free. We got started back in 2017 when my wife, Robin, and I realized there is a big need for people to travel quite a distance to their appointments, Prowl said. We've taken people to Rochester, Ohama, o- Omaha, Iowa City, basically all of the surrounding states. Ferrying folks to medical appointments isn't something most of us have at the top of our minds, but Prowl has a soft spot for patients in need, As a young boy, he and his brother watched as their father became ill. The boys, just six and eight, traveled along to the Chicago area for their dad's treatment. Their uncle, who lived in the area, bought Cubs tickets, and the two brothers had a few hours to relax and enjoy a game. It was a nice distraction, said Prowl. These are stressful times, and it's our hope the flight can take a little stress off the table. When my dad got sick, he'd actually been working toward his pilot's license, Prowl said. Once I grew up, getting my own was a way of staying connected to him after he passed. Compassion Flights is operated on an as-needed basis. Prowl has two planes at his disposal, the Cessna, dedicated to the program, and his personal aircraft, the Piper Comanche, when the Cessna is unavailable. He also has a group of pilots willing to hop in an aircraft at a moment's notice. We're really fortunate there are a couple, there are a group of skilled and generous people who are willing to fly if we need them, Prowl explained. We never charge for our services, so having volunteers is important. Compassion Flights is aimed at providing a brief respite from the ongoing slog of fighting and illness. Flights are generally short, but the excitement of flying is a welcome distraction to most patients. Patients interested in Compassion Flights must be cleared by their doctor to fly. We always want to make sure there isn't going to be an in-flight issue, so we request that clearance from a doctor. Otherwise, it's simply a matter of calling, he said. While Prowl and his uh, pilots are experienced in shuttling patients, they're a taxi service rather than an ambulance. We don't do emergency transport, Prowl, Prowl said. That's a job for medical professionals. Recently, Prowl took a young boy with liver cancer to his appointments in Iowa City. In this case, he had a bunch of them over the course of a couple days, so we dropped the family off and came back for them when they were ready, said Prowl. Compassion Flights is 100% uh, donation funded. Each year, Prowl hosts a fly-in breakfast at the Hampton Municipal Airport as its main fundraiser. We don't have a payroll, just volunteer pilots, he said. We're always looking for pilots to fill out our roster. Compassion Flights has a website at uh, www.compassionflights.com as well as a Facebook page. Those interested in the flights can request a trip online or call Prowl 
at 641-430-9710. Pilots interested in flying for the organization can call Prowl to organize, rather to arrange, an interview. Donations are accepted by mail at Compassion Flights, 1274 Olive Avenue, Suite B, Hampton, Iowa, 50441. Second story on the front page is entitled, Video of Teacher with Gun Was Misleading, the District Says. Northwood Kensett Teacher Was Confiscating a Prop Gun, written by Alexander Schmidt, Globe Gazette. The Northwood Kensett Community School District has shared more details about an incident that landed an elementary teacher on administrative leave in December after a video posted on Facebook appeared to show the teacher holding a gun as he argued with students. The teacher, identified through the school staff directory as K-12 music instructor William Kochneff, K-O-C-H-N-E-F-F, as a long-term substitute, was a long-term substitute, according to the district. The investigation, concluded by the district last Friday, found that Koshneff was acting within district policy and the video, taken and shared by a student, was misleading in portraying the situation. A student found the look-alike weapon in storage in the room in a play-prop box and could not give it to the teacher when asked would not give it to the teacher when asked to do so, said Superintendent Michael Crozier. Rather than violating the district's weapons policy, Koshneff was enforcing it. Koshneff was shown in the short clip, which is captioned, Help, holding the gun by the butt and waving it around while seemingly arguing with students. The clip was widely shared on social media, prompting the district to send out... Uh, a letter to parents. At no time was there an actual real weapon in our building, and we can confirm that at no time were students in threat of physical harm, read Crozier's letter to the district staff and parents. I can certainly understand that this incident has raised concerns, the letter continued. Please know that we take all matters related to student safety, both psychological and physical, absolute or seriously, and will ensure that the matter is resolved. N.K. administrators concluded their internal investigation of the incident that occurred in the secondary choir classroom Friday. Crozier said Koshneff's duties were scheduled to be concluded after Christmas break. He was placed on administrative leave December 17 and no longer appears on the uh, staff directory. After interviewing the students directly involved, the district said a clearer picture of what occurred has become evident, signifying significantly different than what the 11-second video clips suggest. While reprimanding students for not cooperating with his efforts to properly put the look-alike weapon into safekeeping, another student took the video, stating she thought it was funny, and posted it to her private Snapchat story, said Crozier, adding, that student has since apologized for her actions. The district did not confirm why the look-alike weapon was present in the classroom or if anyone was found in violation of the district's weapons policy, which reads in part, quote, School district facilities are not an appropriate place for weapons, dangerous objects, and look-alikes. Weapons and other dangerous objects and look-alikes will be taken from students and others who bring them onto the school district property or onto property within the jurisdiction of the school district or from students who are within the control of the school district, end quote. Policy also says that students found in possession of weapons, 
dangerous objects, or lookalikes on school property are subject to disciplinary action. Yes, action including suspension or expulsion. The policy exempts weapons under the control of law enforcement officials or other individuals specifically authorized by the board. Page 2, Mason City Fire Department responds to ag processing fire. Mason City firefighters responded to a call of an equipment fire at Ag Processing located at 1605 19th Street Southwest just before 3 a.m. Wednesday. According to a press release, one ladder truck, two ambulances, and three command units were total, with a total of 14 firefighters, medics responded to the scene. Upon their arrival, fire department personnel found the fire Sprinkler system was activated in the building where the process equipment was located. The fire sprinkler system assisted with containing the fire until the fire department gained access to the interior of the equipment and extinguished the fire, the release said. The majority of the units cleared the scene by 5.58 a.m., with the exception of one engine company remained on scene most of the day to assist plant staff with overhaul. MCFD personnel were also assisted on scene by Cerro Gordo Emergency Management. No injuries were reported. The cause of the fire is still under investigation. And Mason City Man accused of breaking protective order 12 times in three months. Written by Lisa Gruet of the Globe Gazette. A North Iowa man is facing contempt of court charges after police say he broke a no-contact order for the 12th time since October. According to court documents, Joshua Michael Holman, 44, of Mason City, was arrested on felony third offense uh, domestic assault charges October 18, and a no-contact order was issued on behalf of the victim. While still in jail, Holman reportedly called the victim, called other parties, asking them to relay messages to the victim, asked other parties to go to the victim's residence to deliver messages, and mailed letters to other parties requesting they deliver the correspondence to the victim. A total of seven contempt charges were filed in October, with two of them being dropped. In November, three more charges were filed after Holman allegedly attempted to contact the victim by mail and through other parties. Two of those charges were dropped as well. Holman pleaded guilty to the remaining charges from October and November. Holman was charged with... Uh, contempt again once in December and once earlier this month after authorities say he tried to reach out to the victim through his lawyer and once again contacted the victim by mail. A contempt hearing is scheduled for 8.45 a.m. January 30th at the Cerro Gordo County Courthouse and Holman remains in the Cerro Gordo County Jail on 15500 cash-only bond. Mitchell County Treasurer's employee charged with felonious misconduct Orchard woman accused of falsifying vehicle documents to avoid taxes and fees, by, written again by Alexander Schmidt. An employee at the Mitchell County Courthouse's Motor Vehicle Division has been charged with falsifying a motor vehicle title record for herself to avoid paying taxes on the vehicle. Court records indicate that on December 22, a warrant was issued for the arrest of Sandra Jean Wagner of Orchard, an employee in the Mitchell County Treasurer's Office responsible for issuing titles and motor vehicle registrations. The charges state an Iowa Department of Transportation investigation concluded that Wagner, being a public officer or employee, knowingly did falsify a public record or issue a document falsely purporting to a uh, public 
document, Iowa Motor Vehicle Title Record. That's a quote. <clears throat> the complaint filed by DOT investigator Chris Lehman stated that the Wagner made an application for a vehicle title August 22, alleging she had concealed she had purchased the described vehicle and through the facilitation of her actions to have an employee she was training to issue motor vehicle titles. Unbeknownst to that trainee, the complaint continues, Wagner was able to manipulate the transfer of ownership to receive an Iowa title to her sole benefit and evade the requisite taxation due. The complaint also alleges Wagner purported the application to be a name addition on the title record with her daughter, but concealed there was a true purchase price of her consideration for the vehicle. The defendant knew by her role as a public employee that she was evading the taxation due per Iowa Code and received a title by a deceptive act. The motor vehicle title was a public record then held by the Mitchell County Treasurer and the Iowa Department of Transportation pursuant to Iowa law, the complaint reads. Wagner was charged with felonious misconduct in office, Class D felony, and is scheduled for arraignment at 1 p.m. January 30th at Mitchell County Courthouse. Mitchell County Treasurer Shannon Paulus, P-A-U-L-U-S, declined to comment, and Mitchell County Sheriff Greg Beaver said his office was not involved with the investigation conducted by the Iowa Department of Transportation. Messages left by the Globe Gazette for the Iowa DOT and the Mitchell County Attorney's Office were not immediately returned. Sioux City man arrested in robbery of same bank he robbed in 2014. And the date line is Sioux City, written by Mason Doctor, D-O-C-K-T-E-R. A Sioux City man has been charged in this Tuesday morning robbery of a downtown bank. A decade ago, he was convicted of robbing the same bank. Jonathan Birdnecklace, <clears throat> Birdnecklace, 31, was arrested without incident at 3.20 p.m. Tuesday in the 1700 block of Nebraska Street, according to a press release from the Sioux City Police Department. Bird Nicholas was booked at the Woodbury County Jail on a charge of secondary robbery. Officers were dispatched to Great Southern Bank, 329 Pierce Street, at around 9.52 a.m. Tuesday. A man had entered the bank and passed a note to a teller demanding money. He received an undisclosed sum of money and fled on foot. This was not the first time Bird Necklace has been charged with robbing the Great Southern Bank. In October of 2014, he was charged with second-degree robbery after robbing that same branch. The following spring, he was sentenced to 10 years in prison but was eligible for parole after seven years. And the final story on page two, <clears throat> the headline is, Liberal Blogger Gets Press Credentials after filing lawsuit, it's an Associated Press article, Dateline is Des Moines. A liberal journalist who blogs about Iowa politics was granted press credentials for the Iowa House of Representatives Wednesday, after, days after she filed a lawsuit alleging the Republican-controlled House was denying her First Amendment rights. The result brings an end to a years-long fight by Laura Bellin, B-E-L-I-N, who operates the Bleeding Heartland blog, to gain access to the House floor as a member of the press. Bellin called it a victory for press freedom and said she hoped it would make public officials reluctant to deny access to reporters. The lawsuit was brought Friday in federal court by the Institute for Free Speech on her behalf against House Chief Clerk Megan Nelson, 
though the rejection dates back to 2019 and Nelson's predecessor, Carmine Bowl. Nelson declined to comment. Bellin has covered Iowa's state government on the blog for more than a decade and now works as a reporter for a radio station based in Ames, about 35 miles north of the state capital, Des Moines. She is open with her liberal views, often posting opinionated critiques that target Republican lawmakers and policies. This case underscores the First Amendment principle that public officials cannot manipulate press credential policies to play favorites or suppress critical coverage. Courtney Corbella, an attorney with the Institute for Free Speech, said in a statement, In 2019, the Iowa House and Senate adopted policies related to press access after scrutiny over the handling of Bellin's case. Those policies have been revised year after year, and the Senate has since reduced press access by denying reporters workspace on the chamber floor in 2022 for the first time in a century. Moving on to page three of the Gazette. Uh, This is Iowa bill would make anthem mandatory is the headline measure to require to be it be sung in schools in state advances. Caleb McCullough wrote this, Globe Gazette, Des Moines Bureau. Des Moines is the deadline, uh, dateline. Iowa lawmakers advanced a bill that would require students to sing the Star-Spangled Banner each day and require instruction on the words, meaning, and history of the national anthem, including how to love, honor, and respect the anthem. The bill, House Study Bill, The bill, House Study Bill 587, was advanced out of a subcommittee on Wednesday by Republican Reps Henry Stone of Forest City and Phil Thompson of Boone. Democratic Rep uh, Sue Cahill of Marshalltown voted against the bill, saying it is unnecessary and a waste of classroom time. The bill would require students and teachers to sing at least one verse of the anthem each day. Students and teachers would be allowed to opt out of singing the anthem, but they would be required to stand and remain silent while the anthem is being sung. Schools would also have to direct students and teachers to sing all four verses of the anthem on patriotic occasions, as determined by the school board. Private schools would be exempt from the new requirements. Multiple speakers at the subcommittee meeting Wednesday said the bill placed erroneous onerous requirements on schools and was potentially a violation of the First Amendment by requiring students and teachers to stand during the anthem. Connie Ryan, the executive director of the Interfaith Alliance of Iowa, said she was opposed to the bill legislating patriotism and requiring a certain kind of speech at schools. It explicitly talks about teaching how to love, honor, and respect the national anthem, she said, and putting those kind of values on a symbol is simply wrong. Dave Doughton, a lobbyist for the School Administrators of Iowa and the Rural School Advocates of Iowa, said much of what is in the bill is already taught in school classrooms, but the groups did not support implementing the mandates on schools. We promote patriotism as much as possible. We just don't want to be mandated that all districts have to do it and have to do it the same way, he said. Beyond the anthem, the bill would also requires social studies instruction in grades 1 through 12 include instruction on the object and principles of the government of the United States, the sacrifices made by the founders of the United States, and the important contributions made by all who have served in the armed forces since the founding of the United States. During the meeting, Cahill led the group of three lawmakers in singing the national anthem before outlining her opposition to the bill. 
She said she wanted to illustrate that our capital is the perfect place to show patriotism, but schools should not be mandating displays of patriotism. She, uh, she said she was concerned that the bill would mandate speech and asked whether students would be punished if they kneel during the anthem. She also said singing the song every day and teaching its concept would shorten the time available for other topics. The school classroom is not the place for mandating the singing of the national anthem, thus mandating patriotism for students, she said. I think that's something students choose, and it's something that they learn. Stone, the subcommittee chair, said he was supportive of the bill and and introducing the anthem into schools. He noted there could be changes to it as it moves through the lawmaking process. I grew up in a household that valued patriotism, that promoted patriotism, he said. That's why I joined as a third-generation military man. I believe in this bill. I believe that it's something that we can put back into our schools that has added value. After passing the subcommittee on Wednesday, the bill which was proposed by House Education Committee Chair Scotter Wheeler is eligible for a vote in the full committee. Here's a uh, opinion on the opinion page. Another view from Wall Street Journal says Sanders seeks a show a trial, a show trial for drug CEOs. <clears throat> Senator wants to punish executives who companies sued to block price controls. Socialists love nothing more than an old-fashioned show trial. Witness. U.S. Senator Bernie Sanders' announcement that he'll subpoena the CEOs of drug makers that have challenged the Inflation Reduction Act's price controls. It's a rite of passage these days for CEOs to get hauled before Congress, but the purpose of congressional hearings is to conduct oversight and inform legislation, not punish government opponents. Time to read some obituaries now, and our first one is from Francis N. Randall, Mason City, uh, 93 years old, died Monday, January 22, at Mercy One Medical Center, North Iowa. Funeral service will be held at 11 a.m. Friday, January 26, at First Covenant Church, 411 South, South Ohio Avenue, with Reverend Steve Johnson officiating. Interment will be held in Memorial Park Cemetery. Visitation will be held from 4 to 6 p.m. on Thursday, January 25, at Major Erickson Funeral Home on Pennsylvania Avenue. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be directed to First Covenant Church, Shriners Hospitals for Children, or St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, and online condolences may be left for the family at MajorRicksFuneralHome.com. And arrangements are with Major Ricks, uh, yeah, and that's where the arrangements are being made. Calliope Jolas, it's K-A-L-L-I-O-P-E, and then it's J-O-L-A-S, passed away peacefully into the loving arms of our Lord and entered into the kingdom of heaven, January 20, born July 16, 1931, in Mason City, as the child of Greek immigrant parents. Calliope, believe that's pronounced correctly, was a proud, lifelong resident of Mason City and Clear Lake. Growing up, she had an appreciation for music, studying and playing the piano and singing in the church and school choirs, exhibited an interest in education and learning, and developed an enthusiasm and talent for cooking. She enjoyed spending summers at her parents' lake house on Clear Lake, and she graduated from Mason City High uh, School, NIACC, and Iowa State University, graduating with a degree in mathematics at Iowa State. She was a member of Alpha Gamma Delta Sorority and the Iowa State Singers Choral Ensemble. After graduation, she continued her postgraduate studies in and taught mathematics at Iowa State. 
After marrying Tom, the couple moved to Mason City, started their family. She continued teaching with math and eventually ended up teaching at four of her alma maters, Monroe Junior High School, Mason City High, and Iowa State. In lieu of flowers and customary remembrances, memorials may be made in in Calliope's name to Holy Transfiguration Greek Orthodox Church in care of Hogan Bremer Moore Colonial Chapels, 126 North Street, Northeast Mason City. And that number, if you're interested, is 641-423-2372. Neil Francis Ackley, 80, Mason City, died Monday, January 22. Funeral service will be 1030 Monday, January 29 at Hogan Bremer Moore Colonial Chapel in Mason City. A visitation from 2 to 4 p.m. Sunday the 28th, also at Hogan Bremer Moore Colonial Chapel. And finally, here's one for Michael James Cookman. Clear Lake, Michael James Cookman, 77, died Saturday the 20th of January at Oakwood Care Center in Clear Lake. Celebration of life will be held at 10.30 a.m. Monday, January 29, at Ward Van Slyke Colonial Chapel uh, in Clear Lake with Mark Dobel, D-O-E-B-E-L, officiating. The Nermit will be in Memorial Park Cemetery, Mason City. Visitation will be held at 3 to 6 p.m. Sunday, the 28th of January at Ward Van Slyke uh, Colonial Chapel and Ward Van Slyke Chapel, North Clear Lake, is who you can contact if you want more information, 641-357-2193. I'm sorry I missed, uh, I missed an obituary. It's for Rodney Lane Johnson of Summerfield, Florida, passed away May 11 of 2023. Was born on April 11, 1940 in Lake Mills. He lived in Lake Mills with his mother Inez, his sisters Yvonne and Gloria, and his brother Clinton until the fall of 45. When the family moved to Clear Lake, Iowa in early 1946, he lost his sister Gloria to pneumonia. And he is survived by Susan, his wife of nearly 53 years, his son Andrew, and his adopted daughter Heidi, and her children, Amelia Jasvin and Marshall Jasvin. Sports time. <clears throat> On the front page of the sports, Smith's big, uh, big fourth quarter leads Lions past Humboldt, written by Nate Thomas. There was still a sense of calm within number one Clear Lake's huddle with just over four minutes left. Coach Jeremy Ainley took a timeout with his team trailing 64-55 to after Humboldt's Cohen Matson and Elliot Carlson nailed big-time three-pointers after the Lions pulled within a possession. The message was to relax, Ainley said. There was still plenty of time left for his team to put together a run, and the Lions did. Clear Lake put together a 19-1 run to end the game and beat Humboldt 74-65 at home on Monday night to move to 12-0 on the season. The win also gives the Lions a two-game lead in the North Central Conference. It was a lightning-fast response from Clear Lake out of Ainley's timeout as the Lions took the lead back with two and a half minutes left on and on and won by Schmidt. I thought we could uh, claw back and do it, but I didn't think it would be in a minute and a half, Anley said. We started playing with more energy. We got stops, and you can't make a run without getting stops. Titan Schmidt started off hot on Monday night. He scored nine points in the uh, first half to help the Lions take an early lead, but the junior guard took it on another level in the fourth quarter. Schmidt scored 17 points in the final eight minutes, including 10 points in Clear Lake's big run to the end of the game. He also finished with nine rebounds and eight assists in the win. I just kept 
taking it to the basket, Schmidt said. My shot was feeling good tonight, and I just wasn't missing towards the end. Heck of a performance, Ainley said. One of the all-time performances for us in the fourth quarter was just another chapter. You are listening to the Mason City Globe Gazette and the Fort Dodge Messenger on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Doug Kretzinger. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, give us a call at 515-243-6833. And now we're going to turn to the Fort Dodge Messenger. Front page story here. <clears throat> Des Moines artists begin work on Nature Center murals. It's written by Kelby Wingert, and it reads, With the exterior work on the River's Edge Discovery Center mostly complete, the focus is now on finishing up the interior and preparing the space for an array of exhibits highlighting Iowa's water resources. But before the exhibits, which were bid to Taylor Studios of Rantoul, Illinois, for $1.7 million can be installed, the walls need to be painted. In planning the Nature Center project, Webster County Conservation Director Matt Cosgrove wanted to use every surface to really celebrate the winter theme, the water theme. Snaking across the floor is a river made of blue materials. On one wall is a diagram of the layers of soil and rock in the ground. Another wall has the beginnings of a fluffy cloud full of rain everywhere else. There are sketches and pencil lines that hint at what's coming next. And there's a picture of the two girls we're talking about here standing in front of that picture just described. The Des Moines artists, uh, Kathleen Joy Rowling and Laura Todd, are about a week into the process of painting a massive mural on the walls of the main exhibit space of the Nature Center. Their colorful design gives a glimpse of lakes, ponds, and streams, and the floral and fauna that rely on those water sources to thrive. Webster County Conservation showed us what they wanted, but then we put our style into it, Rowling said. The two artists began work on the manual, the mural, last week using a video projector and a scissor lift. They started with sketching the outline of the sign on the walls. Once they finished with that, they began filling in the color. It's more efficient to just work on getting our outlines on and making it to painting later because we only have the lifts for so long, Todd said. And this was also their first time using scissor lifts to reach up to the top of the walls. That took a little bit of practice at first uh, and a lot of bravery, Rowling said. Above one of the windows will be a mural depicting the Des Moines River and Lizard Creek running through Fort Dodge and uh, under the Carl King and Kenyon Road bridges. This one, they'd like to show how the waterways and the streams work with the urban uh, landscape, Todd said. Above another window will be a mural of a prairie pothole, a depressional wetland, or a freshwater marsh. I didn't even know what a prairie pothole was until I researched it, Rowling said. Todd and Rowling spent a lot of time researching the water cycle, wildlife, and aquatic plant life as they designed the mural. We have to be accurate, Rowling said. This really was a job designed well for us because we love nature. It's our thing, Todd added. We're nature people. Collaboration was key to the creation of this mural, Rowling said. Laura and I are both individual professional artists, but we partner a lot on really big projects, she said. 
were really good friends, and we just naturally started assisting each other on mural projects. And then we got to the point where we started hap- uh, partnering on really big ones. We work really well together, Todd asked, added. Our styles mesh really well. On Wednesday, Rolling and Todd were working on painting details on the wall that depicts the underground water cycle. There are specific layers of the earth, and when you travel down, it has the difficult, uh, different kinds of rock faces that we're trying to simulate to give an accurate depiction, Todd said. The immensity, the immensity of the project was something the two artists aren't used to. Typically, I'm hired for one mural at a time, not like an entire museum, Rowling said. This is the biggest project that either of us has ever done, so we've learned a lot and it's really good for our future, Todd added. Todd and Rowling expect to have the murals complete by March 1. It's weird to take time f- to have, oh, let me say that again. It's weird to have like five more weeks left because we normally finish within a week. So we're used to having a lot of results really quickly, Rowling said. But because there's so much collaboration going on and communication and a lot of things we have to work around, adapting quickly is a big thing for us. Todd said they're in talks with Webster County Conservation to possibly plant smaller murals on the walls of the classrooms in the building, but nothing has been decided yet. The River's Edge Discovery Center on 1st Street north of Central Avenue is a $6.7 million project of Webster County Conservation. The Nature Center building will be focused on Iowa's water resources. Center exhibit space will feature an array of uh, exhibits on the water cycle, wetlands, glaciers, and rivers and streams. Project is being funded through a $4 million destination Iowa grant from the state, a $300,000 grant from the Iowa Department of Cultural Affairs, and through private donations. Cosgrove told the Webster County Board of Supervisors in November that the Nature Counter Project is on track to be completed in the spring with a grand opening sometime in the summer. Also on the front page, Storm Lake Area Barn Showcases Local History is the headline. It's written by Darcy Doherty Malsby. Dateline is Storm Lake. When Tammy Ebel and her husband Jeff were looking for an acreage in northwest Iowa, Tammy had some non-negotiables. I wanted an old farmhouse and I wanted a barn. I wanted an acreage to look like a farm. Well, the couple looked at about 14 properties before they took a look at an acreage south of Storm Lake along U.S. Highway 71. It fit everything Tammy wanted. The barn didn't have a lick of paint on it. When we bought this place in 2006, she said, we started fixing it up right away. It was quite a transformation for a barn that the previous owner had considered tearing down. Ebel's hard work didn't go unnoticed. Multiple people put notes in our mailbox saying, Thank you for fixing up the barn, said Tammy Ebel, who was grateful the barn had a steel roof when she and Jeff brought the property. The acreage even had an interesting tie to Tammy Ebel's family. My great-uncle rented this place for a year. year. My great-uncle rented this place for a year a number of years ago while his place was being built by Sac City, she said. The Ebel's barn was built around uh, 1920. The Lang family owned the property for more than 40 years before the Ebel's purchased the acreage. The barn housed a variety of livestock through the years, including sheep. Four countless weekends, we shoveled and jackhammered sheep manure out of the barn to clean it up, uh, Tammy Ebel said. 
Ebel and her husband, a truck driver with Wells Ag, have done all the restoration work on their barn with some help from family members. When we needed help with siding, my brother was willing to trade his labor for a used car he needed, said Tammy Ebel, who grew up in Cherokee. The Ebels were among the first barn owners in Buena Vista County to install a barn quilt. When the original barn quilt faded, they repainted it several times through the years. They decided they didn't want to do that again, so they eventually replaced the barn quilt with a vintage metal S&H green stamp sign that Tammy purchased at a local sale. Today, the barn includes storage space, a bar and various vintage items on display, from advertising signs to church pews. The Ebels have even hosted family reunions in the barn. We love it here, Tammy Ebels said. Person of interest in homicide is detained. Police find him in Bode. It's by Kelly Wingert, and it reads, A Fort Dodge man who was sought by police as a person of interest in a homicide last month was taken into custody for a parole violation Wednesday. Local law enforcement has been looking for 37-year-old David S. Dayton since January 9, calling him a person of interest in the December 29 deadly shooting of 45-year-old Ryan Andrews of Fort Dodge. On Wednesday morning, the Fort Dodge Police Department announced the $500 reward for information offered by Webster County Crime Stoppers was increased to $750. Just hours later, the uh, Fort Dodge Police Department reported that Baton had been taken into custody following a search warrant execution at the residence in Bode. According to the press release, the FDPD was assisted by the Iowa State Patrol tactical team and other law enforcement agencies to execute the search warrant at about 1.14 p.m. Wednesday. Law enforcement on scene made numerous attempts to make contact with Mr. Dayton inside the residence and were unsuccessful, FDPD Chief Dennis Quinn said in the release. Multiple tactics were utilized to manage the incident and safeguard the well-being of both uh, Mr. Dayton, the community, and law enforcement. And after a thorough and professional response by law enforcement on scene, Mr. Dayton ex- exited the residence and the situation was successfully resolved. Dayton was taken into custody on a parole violation warrant out uh, of Pocahontas County. According to court records, the parole violation warrant was issued in November of 2022. Dayton is accused of various infractions, including substance abuse communicating with incarcerated individuals, and missing appointments with his parole officer. Dayton was released on parole October 10 of 2022 after serving about two and a half years of a five-year prison sentence for pleading guilty to two counts of possession of methamphetamine, third offense, and driving while barred. Andrews was found unresponsive on the ground with an apparent gunshot wound when law enforcement was called to the 1600 block of 14th Avenue Southwest at 5.16 a.m. December 29. Officers and medics with the Fort Dodge Fire Departments rendered medical aid to Andrews before he was transported to Unity Point Health, Trinity Regional, Regional Medical Center, where he was later pronounced dead. The FDPD began a death investigation and were assisted by the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation on January 9. Quinn officially labeled Andrews' death a homicide. Americans' economic outlook brightens as inflation slows and wages outpace prices. Here's another headline. Dateline is Washington, D.C. After an extended period of gloom, 
Americans are starting to feel better about inflation and the economy, a trend that could sustain consumer spending, fuel economic growth, and potentially affect President Joe Biden's political fortunes. A measure of consumer sentiment by the University of Michigan has jumped in the past two months by the most since 1991. A survey by the Federal Reserve Bank of New York found that Americans' inflation expectations have reached their lowest point in nearly three years. And the same survey released last week found that the proportion who expect their own finances to improve a year from now is at a highest level since June of 2021. Economists say consumers appear to be responding to steadily slower inflation, higher incomes, lower gas prices, and a rising stock market. Inflation has tumbled from a peak of around 9% in June of 2022 to 3.4%, according to the Federal Reserve's preferred price gauge. Inflation has reached the Fed's annual 2% target when measured over the past six months. What's more, paychecks have outpaced inflation over the past year, thereby easing Americans' adjustment to a higher cost of living. Weekly earnings for the typical worker, halfway between the highest and lowest earners, rose 2.2% last year after adjusting for inflation, the government reported last week. By that measure, inflation-adjusted pay is 2.5% higher than before the pandemic. While falling inflation took some time to feed through to consumer sentiment, it appears the good news is finally getting through, said Grace Zwimmer, an analyst at Oxford Economics. Consumers' inflation expectations are important because they can become self-perpetuating. When people expect inflation to stay high, they often change their behavior by accelerating purchases before prices are further, arise further, which can, in turn, fuel more inflation. By contrast, lower inflation expectations can reverse the dynamic and help cool inflation. Even with the steady slowdown in inflation, prices are still nearly 17% higher than they were three years ago, a source of discontent for many Americans. Though some individual goods are becoming less expensive, overall prices will likely remain well above their pre-pandemic levels. That dichotomy, a rapid fall in inflation with a full, a still elevated, I'm sorry, I'll try that again, that dichotomy, a rapid fall in inflation with a still elevated cost of living will likely set up a key question in the minds of voters, many of whom are still feeling the lingering financial and psychological effects of the worst bout of inflation in four decades, which will carry more weight in the presidential election the dramatic decline in inflation, or the fact most prices are much higher than they were three years ago. The cost to rent an apartment has also soared and is still rising faster than before the pandemic. Experimental gene therapy allows kids with inherited deafness to hear, is the headline. It's written by Laura Unger, AP science writer. Gene therapy has allowed several children born with inherited deafness to hear. Small study published Wednesday documents significantly restored hearing in five of six kids treated in China. On Tuesday, the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia announced similar improvements in an 11-year-old boy treated there. And earlier this month, Chinese researchers published a study showing much the same in two other children. So far, the experimental therapies target only one rare condition. But scientists say similar treatments could someday help many more kids with other types of deafness caused by genes. Globally, 34 million children have deafness on 
or hearing loss, and genes are responsible for up to 60% of cases. Hereditary deafness is the latest condition scientists are targeting with gene therapy, which is already approved to treat illnesses such as sickle cell disease and severe hemophilia. Children with hereditary deafness often get a device called a cochlear implant that helps them hear sound. No treatment could reverse hearing loss. That's why we're always trying to develop a therapy, said Zheng Zhizhu of Boston's Mass uh, Eye and Ear, a senior author of the study published Wednesday in the journal Lancet. We couldn't be more happy or excited about the results. The team captured parents' progress in videos, or patients' progress in videos. One shows a baby who previously couldn't hear at all, looking back in response to a doctor's words six weeks after treatment. Another shows a little girl 13 weeks after treatment repeating father, mother, grandmother, sister, and I love you. All the children in the experiments have a condition that accounts for 2% to 8% of inherited deafness. It caused its cause by mutations in a gene responsible for an inner ear protein called odoferlin, which helps hair cells transmit sound to the brain. The one-time therapy delivers a functional copy of that gene to the inner ear during a surgical procedure. Most of the kids were treated in one ear, although one child in the two-person study was treated in both ears. Study with six children took uh, place at Fudan University in Shanghai, co-led by Dr. Yelai Xu, who trained in Chen's lab, which collaborated on the research. Funders include Chinese science organizations and biotech company Shanghai Refresh Gene Therapeutics. Researchers observe the children for about six months. They don't know why the treatment didn't work in one of them, but the five others who previously had complete deafness can now hear a regular conversation and talk with others. Chen estimates they now hear at a level around 60 to 70 percent of normal. The therapy caused no major side effects. Moving into sports stories now. Thursday, January 25, front page, Crooks has career night for ISU. Bishop Garrigan grad has 25 points in Cyclones lost to Jayhawks. In the dateline is Lawrence, Kansas. Iowa State came up just short in the two-point loss of a 60-58 to to Kansas Wednesday night. In a game of 24 lead changes and 11 ties, the contest wasn't over until the final buzzer sounded. It was a tight matchup throughout, with just five points being the largest lead of the game. After a tie of 23-23 at halftime, Iowa State, 12-6 overall, 6-2 in the Big 12, held the lead as late as 2-15 in the fourth, but Kansas, 10-9 and 3-5, went back up and held it. Bishop Garrigan uh, graduate Audie Cooks had a career night while keeping her double-figure scoring streak alive, extending it to 17 games with an all-time best 25 points. It's the rookie's seventh 20-point game as she also had eight rebounds and a block. Addie Brown, with her usual self, was her usual self, dialing in 10 points, seven rebounds, and six assists. Jalen Bristow had the next highest total with eight, all in a row in the second quarter. Crooks is a former Bishop Garrigan standout, has now paced the Cyclones, getting to the next page, in scoring ten times 
this season. She was 5 of 7 from the free throw line on the night. For the Jayhawks, Samaya Nichols scored 16 with Yvette Mayberry and Zakaya Franklin, each adding 113. A three-point play by Crooks in the fourth tied the game at 45-all, but Kansas would take the lead shortly after. Iowa State had a chance to tie it with 12 seconds left, but missed the three-pointer, and the Jayhawks sealed it at the line. The Cyclones return to action Saturday when they visit West Virginia for a 1 p.m. showdown streaming live on Big 12, now on ESPN+. Iowa Central versus Marshalltown. Perfect timing is the headline. Triton women earn big win as showdown looms, written by uh, Dana Becker. The Iowa Central women took care of business here Wednesday night ahead of key showdown with fourth-ranked Kirkwood. Behind a quick start, the Tritons handed, handled Marshalltown for their sixth consecutive win, 62-46. to Emily Thies, T-H-E-I-S-S, had a game-high 22 points, with Laney Pilcher adding 13 and Caitlin Tendall 10. Due to rescheduling, Iowa Central 15-3 overall, 7-3, 7-3 in the ICCAC, will now face Kirkwood twice over a three-day period beginning Saturday in Cedar Rapids. The rematch is set for Monday back here. Tritons have won all six of their 2024 games, scoring at least 62 points each time out. They have also won their last three by at least 15 points and are a perfect 7-0 at home. Our focus as a program is always one game at a time, ICCC head coach Saba Dickerson said. Marshalltown has had a tough season, but they have the ability to shoot the three ball well. Our challenge was ex- executing our defensive game plan for 40 minutes. Iowa Central led 19-7 after the first and were in control at the half with a 19-point advantage. Alicia Halstead added seven points, and Mia uh, Danielson, six. Tendall recorded six steals with the Pilcher, Pitcher and Thice, and each representing three. Adelstad and the Thice had four rebounds, and Jordan Meyer, Mer- uh, Maryland did uh, three assists. As a team, the Tritons finished 18-19 for 19 from the three-throw line, marking uh, the tenth time this season they have shot at least 80% at the charity stripe. They are a combined 93 of 106 during their current win streak, including 31 for 34 over the past two games. Hodges Fieldhouse is a special place for the Navy and White, Dickerson said. We always seem to put together quality wins here, and we reminded our team collecting as many wins as we can in Region 11 is huge. It'll be key for our seeding as we start to play everyone for the second time here in the next week or so. For Marshalltown, Tara Campbell scored 13 and Destiny Sal. Martinez, Martinez, uh, 12. The Tigers, 2-16, and 0-10, have lost seven in a row. Tip in Saturday's meeting with Kirkwood is set for 1 p.m. The Eagles, 18-2 and 9-1, and top Southwestern last night, 80-42. to We have three or four obituaries I forgot to read, and they are Gary Thurston of 76 of Fort Dodge, passed away Tuesday the 23rd at Paula Baker Baber Hospice Home in Fort Dodge. Services will be at 10 a.m. on Saturday, the 27th. At the Gunderson Funeral Chapel, burial will be in the Memorial Park Cemetery with military honors conducted by the United States Marine Corps and the VFW Post 1856. Visitation will be from 4 p.m. to 7 p.m. on Friday 
at the Gunnison Funeral Home and Cremation Services in Fort Dodge. And Mary Schmoker, S-C-H-M-O-K-E-R, Fort Dodge, 69 years old, passed away Tuesday, the 23rd, at Trinity Regional Medical Center. Mary was born on March 1, 1954, to Eugene and Alice uh, Jaron Utley. She grew up and attended school in Fort Dodge, and they owned and operated Union Cab in Fort Dodge for 26 years. She loved her family and her dogs and was always willing to help anyone she could. Funeral services will be held at 1 p.m. on Monday, the 29th, at Gunderson Funeral Chapel with burial following at North Lawn Cemetery. Visitation will be from 2 to 5 p.m. on Sunday at Gunderson Funeral Home and Cremation Services. Doris Harms, Doris Doty Harms, 90 years old, of Fort Dodge, passed away Tuesday, the 23rd of January. At Friendship Haven, funeral services will be held at 10.30 a.m. Monday, January 29th at St. Paul Lutheran Burial uh, Church, and burial will follow at North Lawn Cemetery. Eugene Wyatt, uh, 75, died peacefully Saturday, January 20th at Dayton Grandview Care Center. Known as Gene, he was born in Fort Dodge in 1948 to Eugene and Jenny Wyatt. He graduated from Fort Dodge Senior High in 1968. Celebration of Life will be held at Grandview Care Center in Dayton, Iowa, on 10.30 a.m. Wednesday, January 31. Rosemary Schoolcraft, Forest City, visitation from 4 to 7 p.m. on Friday, January 26. Funeral service is 10.30 a.m. on Saturday, January 27. Both will be at First Baptist Church Bowman Funeral Home. And Larry Krimmel, uh, Larry Krimmel was 62 of Fort Dodge, died Tuesday, the 23rd. At Unity Point Health, Trinity Regional Medical Center, no services are scheduled. And Bruce's Home.com is handling those arrangements. Here's a couple of this date in history. In 1981, the 52 Americans held hostage by Iran for 444 days arrived in the United States. In 1993, on this date, Sears announced that it would no longer publish its famous century-old catalog. And in 1994, maintaining his innocence, singer Michael Jackson settled a child molestation lawsuit against him. Terms were confidential, and although the monetary figure was reportedly $22 million. And in 2004, NASA's Opportunity rover zipped its first pictures of Mars to Earth, showing a surface smooth and dark red in some places, and strewn with fragmented slabs of light bedrock in others. 2021, uh, President Joe Biden signed an order reversing a Pentagon policy that largely barred transgender people from military service. A couple events off the community calendar before we wrap it up today. Bingo, tonight, 6.30 p.m., the Opera House, Fort Museum and Frontier Village, 1 Museum Street. Doors open 5 p.m., early birds start at 6.30 p.m. And Alateen, Alateen, 7 p.m., Grace Lutheran Church. There's a meeting there tonight at 7 p.m., if that's of interest to you. And I think that's about it. So that does bring us to the end of today's reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette and the Fort Dodge Messenger for Thursday, January 25. I'm your reader, Doug Kretzinger. I want to thank you for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind, And I hope you have a good day.